Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. I'm grateful to have Jan Spencer here today as guest host for Spirit in Action. I've had Jan on twice before because of the richness of his vision for a better world, what he calls creating a preferred future. You can track down many of his insights via his YouTube videos and on his website, or you may even be able to hear his broadcasts via KEPW in Eugene, Oregon. But he's here today so that we can profit from a sort of basic training in working us toward a sustainable world, what he calls his primer for paradigm shift. Decades ago, Jan redirected his life toward a way of being on the planet that is firmly rooted in the big picture, but empowered by the specifics of daily life that feed global well-being. He'll walk you through tools like the Footprint Calculator of the Global Footprint Network and much, much more. You may well want to take notes as I pass the mic to Jan Spencer over in Eugene, Oregon. Thanks, Mark. I'm glad to be with you here at Spirit in Action. There's never been more need in history to elevate our spirits and make good use of that spirit. Mark, I've been doing a lot of writing for Resilience. That's the online magazine, a project of the Post Carbon Institute. And I've been adding a lot to YouTube. The name for both the written content and on YouTube is a primer for paradigm shift. You can search both YouTube and Resilience Magazine, Jan Spencer, Paradigm Shift. You will find a great deal of unique, timely, and practical content. For this episode of Spirit in Action, I'd like to focus on ecological footprints. Of course, an ecological footprint is the impact we have on the planet. We have shelter, we have food, we have recreation, we have mobility. All those activities impact planet Earth. The more we consume, the more impact. It's as simple as that. A group called the Global Footprint Network has a footprint calculator online. You can find it. Search Global Footprint Network Footprint Calculator. The calculator asks you a lot of questions about your lifestyle, like what kind of food do you eat? What kind of shelter do you have? Do you share that place with other people? Do you drive or do you take public transportation? What kind of stuff do you buy? I'll admit, there must be a little bit of speculation with the calculator, its questions, and its outcomes. But personally, I think it's a very useful educational tool. Is it the final word? Probably not. Actually, I think it's a little bit soft. It should be more critical, I think. 
The Footprint Network also has a map. You can find it online. It's a global map, and it shows by color all the countries in the world and indicates by color for all those countries how many planet Earths would it take for everybody in the world to live like the average person in that particular country. Of course, the United States shares the brightest red color with only a couple of other small countries. And that color meaning that for everyone in the world to live like the average American, we would need something like five planet Earths to provide the resources and process the waste. I've answered all those questions, and I have my own particular result I'd like to share the results with the listening audience, plus some new thoughts about the calculator. But first, I'd like to describe a project I'm working on. It's called A Primer for Paradigm Shift. Reducing our ecological footprints is a big part of the primer. It's a big part of paradigm shift. So I'll describe part of the primer before the break and part of the primer after the break during this broadcast here, Spirit in Action. Okay, let's have a look at the primer. What is the destination for paradigm shift? That destination would be a society and individual lifestyles that exist within the boundaries of the natural world. One of the primary goals of that society would be to bring out the best in positive human potential. And that society would be served by an honest and accountable economic system. Of course, those ideals would require a lifestyle, a society, our jobs, our diets would be very, very different from what we have now. Important to add that much of what's produced in our consumer culture, our affluence, is useful in terms of sustainability and uplift. Our way of life doesn't have to be a package deal. We can choose the healthy products and services and leave the rest behind. I see no way to make our current lifestyle and consumer culture green and the emphasis on overconsumption and vanity isn't a good idea in the first place. The primer goes into detail in its critique of capitalism and the consumer culture. The primer explains the term external costs. That, of course, means the price we pay doesn't cover the damage that product or service imposes on people or planet. The price we pay is dishonest. Our economic system is hardwired to be dishonest. Capitalism would not exist if it was an honest economic system. In effect, External costs are a multi-trillion dollar subsidy to the economic system every year. External costs are one of my primary objections to this economic system and its consumer culture. The primer also deconstructs the mythologies of capitalism. 
These are the mythologies. The magic hand, informed choice, efficiency, the idea that capitalism and democracy go together, and then, of course, American exceptionalism. I'm all for patriotism, a patriotism for the human spirit and what humans are capable of, but I can't support a patriotism that glorifies overconsumption and vanity. One of my favorite observations about the economic system is when you consider millions of jobs exist to repair the damage caused by millions of other jobs, we have a big problem. The primer also devotes a lot of time to describing people and projects already in the realm of paradigm shift. A healthy paradigm doesn't necessarily mean some wonderful condition in the future. Paradigm shift can happen to an appreciable degree in our own lives sooner rather than later, actually as soon as we care to make those kinds of changes in how we prioritize our own time and money. I love the stories in the primer about transforming suburbia. What can we do with suburbia to make it more green, resilient, healthy, and uplifting? Another favorite story in the primer is a friend in Portland who bought a rundown apartment complex and turned it into an eco-village. Other great examples of paradigm shift in action include school gardens to teach kids healthy food literacy and care for the natural world, worker-owned co-ops and progressive economic development, front yard gardens where it's easy to meet your neighbors, the enormous potential of neighborhood associations, creating economic mechanisms where people can invest their own money in local projects that benefit the community, site tours in the neighborhood so people can see real-life examples of what suburbia can look like. These are just a few examples of what the primer touches on. There are many, many more wonderful stories of paradigm shift in action all over the country and all over the world. The primer also describes how to take these ideas out to a wider audience. When you consider that most progressive nonprofit organizations, social, political, economic, they all exist to address some type of external cost, some type of problem created by capitalism. With that assessment in mind, all these nonprofit progressive organizations are basically on the same team. When we address the economic malpractice of capitalism, we begin to address virtually all these social, economic, political, spiritual, and environmental problems all at the same time. Organizations and movements can explain to their members how downsizing eco-footprints helps those organizations and movements achieve their goals. So let's take a look at those questions from the calculator. 
what were my responses and what does that tell us about what a comparatively low overhead, low consuming lifestyle might look like. The calculator can be found at footprintnetwork.org. I strongly encourage people to check out the calculator, answer the questions. You might surprise yourself. It's very educational and thought-provoking. And also note, the calculator is interactive. You can adjust many of your responses on a scale from 0 to 100. So, the first question is, how often do you eat animal products? But be aware, it doesn't ask you how much animal products you eat. That's an important question, too. The calculator doesn't ask that. And I consider that to be a substantial flaw. My answer to the animal products question is, I don't eat any kind of warm-blooded meat. I don't eat chicken. I might have salmon once or twice a year. I do eat eggs. A dozen eggs from my next-door neighbor last me about two months. A pound of cheese would last me about a month. Another question about food is, how much processed food do you eat? How much packaged food do you eat? And how much of your food is local? My response is, I eat minimal packaged food and, of course, no processed food. Certainly, I buy plenty of products. I drink soy milk. I buy tempeh from a local tempeh producer. I buy bread on occasion. I buy nutritional yeast. Most of the food I buy is bulk. We have a buying club here in my neighborhood. We buy from a local natural food distributor. I do spend a good deal of time in the kitchen. Not as a gourmet chef, which I'm not, but simply it just takes a bit longer to eat lower on the food chain. And I like being in the kitchen too. As I mentioned, I grow virtually all my own fruit and vegetables, and I'm pretty good at storing that food. I grow apples, pears, figs, peaches, grapes, which I make grape juice out of, and I freeze this year nine gallons of grape juice. I have mulberries. I have walnuts. I have a lemon tree, blueberries, hardy kiwi, I had nectarines for the first time last summer. And, of course, the usual types of vegetables. Onions, potatoes, tomatoes, leeks, green beans. I love making dill pickles. I oftentimes make sauerkraut. Many cool season crops keep stored live in the ground all winter. The calculator doesn't ask you what you grow yourself, but it does ask if you buy local, and that is important. As many writers and researchers have documented, eating lower on the food chain is definitely smart for public health, saving money, and the environment. And, of course, there's an ethical issue as well with factory farming. Next, 
the calculator asks about your housing situation. What kind of a place do you live in? You have multiple choice responses. Do you live in a freestanding or a detached house, an apartment, a duplex, a row house, a luxury condo? And then a little bit more detail on what the construction materials are. Is the place you live in brick, concrete, straw, steel, wood, adobe? All those materials have different ecological footprints. Continuing with housing, the calculator asks another important question. How many people share that place? It's just common sense that a larger house shared by fewer people is going to have a larger ecological footprint. My place is a very modest mid-50s suburban house. When it was first built, it did have two bedrooms, a one-car garage, about a 1,050 square feet. When I bought it, one of the first things I did was I helped a friend turn the garage into another bedroom. Because part of my plan was to rent rooms in this house, I'm single, and I wanted the house to pay for itself. So having housemates was part of the plan from the very beginning. Plus, of course, it's nice to have some company and people to talk with. After about seven years, I decided to build a new detached structure behind the main house. And that is where I live now. That's where I'm doing this recording at this moment. So what I've done is I've increased the residential density of this property. That means the ecological footprint is smaller for everybody who lives here. It also means that we help protect the urban growth boundary. Here in Oregon, we do have land use laws that confine urban development within an urban growth boundary. All around Eugene is high-quality farmland, and we want to protect that farmland. That's why we have an urban growth boundary. And, of course, suburban development is a very inefficient way to use land. But, of course, it's very important to the economic system because the economic system wants us to use as much materials, energy, and resources as possible. Managing my property the way that I do is very intentional. It's a good example of how I prioritize my time and my money. I've had pretty good luck with housemates over the years, and, of course, the income from those housemates is very important to my own personal economics as well. The next question is about electricity. The calculator asks, how energy efficient is your house? It asks about appliances. Are they new? Are they old? Are they used in an efficient way? How about insulation and lighting in your house? I responded, my place is probably a little bit better than average. We keep the place fairly cool in the wintertime. Of course, we don't need air conditioning in the summer. I have a heat pump. My former south side of the house patio is now closed in. It's a sunroom. 
A lot of solar energy enters that place on sunny days in the cool part of the year. I use heat generated in that solar space to help warm the house. Of course, much of our electricity here in the Northwest is hydro. So, I would say overall, the house is pretty good, nothing exceptional in terms of electricity. The next part of the calculator is about solid waste. Questions are about how much clothes do I buy during the year? How often are appliances replaced? The same for electronics. Do I buy books? Do I buy magazines? How about home furnishings? Do I recycle? Those are all pretty easy. I really don't buy a whole lot of anything. We could say my home decor is simple. Of course, I have my computer here. I have a couple of old-fashioned cassette tape stereo systems. Of course, one is in the kitchen. There's no TV, no entertainment center. I have an old shop vac for a vacuum cleaner. Of course, I have some basic power tools. I buy used clothes at the thrift store now and then. My down jacket is 45 years old. The sofas are nice. I bought them on Craigslist. I do subscribe to the New York Times, but that's online. I donate to The Guardian and Wikipedia. And, of course, I do recycle. I wouldn't call my material lifestyle austere, but it certainly is quite simple and, no doubt, not what the average American would aspire to. Next, questions from the calculator are about transportation. The first question asks, how far do you travel in a car in a typical week? For me, that's pretty easy. Last summer, I gave my truck away. I don't have a car anymore. I sometimes go literally weeks without even riding in a car. Year-round, I don't think, should I bike or should I drive? That thought doesn't even occur to me. I just get on my bicycle when I need to go somewhere. The calculator asks about the fuel economy of your car, but there's no option to indicate I don't have a car. And, of course, I don't carpool because I don't ride in cars very much. I don't know if that penalizes me or not for my footprint calculation. And in a similar way, I don't use a bus or a train. I don't use public transportation. I ride a bike. Eugene is small enough. I get around fine on a bicycle. My home is near the bikeway along the river. And that's how I go into town. That's how I go over to the University of Oregon. The bikeway is free of cars. Interesting, the calculator doesn't ask you about your recreation. Many forms of recreation have enormous ecological footprints. Of course, downhill skiing is a lot of fun, but it takes a lot of energy to get to the ski slope. My primary recreation is my bike. Several years ago, I put my bike on Amtrak and went to Tucson, Arizona. 
I took my bike off the train in Tucson, rode south, and meandered through southeastern Arizona for about a week, made my way to El Paso, Texas. From El Paso, I put my bike back on Amtrak and returned to Eugene. I love bike riding. Okay, I confess, the last question from the calculator is, how many hours do you spend in an airplane every year? I responded, none, even though the past two summers I've gone to Europe for three months each summer. And, of course, those were extreme low-budget trips to Europe. But the airplane carbon footprint still remains the same. I don't know how different my calculation would be if I included being on a plane for, like, 20 hours. So, with that one airplane omission, my footprint calculation comes out to 1.1 Earths. That means for every person in the world to live like me, we'd need 1.1 planets. But hold on, let's take a closer look at the calculator. I touched on this concern briefly in an earlier point in regard to my own lifestyle. My personal mobility is relatively independent of internal combustion, but... My lifestyle is still very dependent on internal combustion for the simple reason so many of the products I do buy at the store are delivered by trucks, and that means internal combustion. I also want to go back to the term external costs. I don't think the primer makes any consideration for that fatal flaw of capitalism if we paid an honest price for virtually everything we buy, the price would be a great deal higher. I've seen estimates of what a gallon of gasoline would cost if the price paid covered the entire life cycle of petroleum and gasoline. That means the prospecting. That means the refining. That means the transportation, the air pollution the dispiriting autocentric urban landscape, 40,000 dead in traffic accidents every year, hundreds of billions of property damage due to traffic accidents every year. If one were to consider all those external costs, a gallon of gasoline could go for $25, $35, $40 a gallon. So, in regard to the footprint calculator, if it does not account for the reality of external costs, its value as a useful tool for one to assess their own lifestyle is seriously undermined. Its questions are still good, but its final score is far too forgiving. Okay, Mark, I know we need to take a break. When we come back, I want to share just a little bit of my own autobiography. Just how did I arrive to this place to advocate and embrace the idea of paradigm shift? We'll also hear a bit more about the primer, the wisdom of the world's great spiritual traditions, and finally, a new term I've learned, and that is cognitive modernity. 
I hate to delay you from learning about cognitive modernity, but I do need to remind you that this is Spirit in Action, and our website is northernspiritradio.org with all kinds of goodies on the site, like links to many of the resources and videos that Jan Spencer is pointing you to, but also all of our programs of the last 18 and a half years and the 35 stations across the USA that carry our Northern Spirit Radio programs and much more. While you're visiting northernspiritradio.org, remember to post a comment on this and other shows and consider making a donation to keep us sustainable. Sustainability needs a group effort, so please help us lift up the voices of so many world healing workers with your contribution. And please reach out to and support your local community radio station. That's a special, invaluable gift to community, so lend a hand or reach in your pocket if you can. Enough from me. Back to today's guest host, Jan Spencer, for more about the Primer for Paradigm Shift. Over to you, Jan. Very good. Thanks, Mark. I've always enjoyed background stories. How did people arrive to where they are today? So I can certainly understand my lifestyle is a little bit unusual, and a short autobiography might be interesting to the listener. So let's hear five or six minutes of autobiography, and then a short review of the ideals, the wisdoms of the world's great spiritual traditions which are very important to me and I think could be useful for other people as well. And then with the remaining time on Spirit in Action, I'll share some more thoughts about ecological footprints and lifestyle. And then, of course, just what is cognitive modernity? And why should I care? My own background is totally middle class. I was a good student. I had a secure family life. In school, I gained an early interest in geography. Our family always lived in suburbia, in New York State, Dallas, Texas, and Denison, Texas. Ecological concerns came to my attention in high school, where I also had some interactions with the authorities that left me skeptical of the system. That was in the late 1960s. In college years, I was introduced to organic gardening and was drifting towards a vegetarian diet, while low-skilled summer jobs left me keen to avoid conventional employment. I graduated from a state college with a degree in geography. A few years after graduating, I lived for two years in an Arkansas Ozark back to the land intentional community with an assorted group of older hipsters, idealistic dropouts, and peaceniks. The iconic self-improvement book, I'm Okay, You're Okay, was a core element in our weekly interpersonal meetings. Two years after I joined the community, it came to a remarkable end. The final days and end of Sassafras is one of the most well-known stories within the counterculture history of the Ozarks, 
and there's a lot of history there too. But it was a life-changing experience. I always seemed to fall in with the right kind of people. I never had a fixation on a career, and my parents were not overbearing. One brother had a Ph.D. in biochemistry and postdoc research at Yale, and my other brother, both of them older, had a career as a medical doctor, as a radiologist. Meanwhile, for me, low-budget travel in the 1980s included adventures all over Europe, and then Kenya, overland to South Africa, and then back to Kenya and return to Europe. All told, that trip was about four years. I learned very little of the world lived in a society dominated by cars, suburbia, and freeways. All that American consumer culture did not seem to make Americans happier than people in other parts of the world with far less stuff. Back in the U.S., I never married, never had kids. I was able to accommodate my own interests, which led me towards a low-cost way of life. Self-employment, painting murals for a living, and a high level of self-determination and time for personal exploration. Activism during the 1980s included protesting nuclear power, organizing and participating in Earth Days. I hung out at the Pacifica radio station when I lived in Houston and also took a permaculture design course in not-so-distant Austin about 1990 and making bike power political statements in Houston's infamous roadside attractions parade. In 1991, I moved to Eugene, not knowing anybody here but well aware the diverse geography and the well-known counterculture of the Pacific Northwest was likely a better fit for me than Texas. The move to Eugene has turned out well, with mural painting jobs paying the modest bills of an intentionally modest solo lifestyle, there's been time for involvements with groups advocating vegetarian food choices, opposing the construction of a huge computer chip factory, and the campaign to stop proposed salvage logging on thousands of acres of protected forest land that had been burned by an arson fire. In the year 2000, modest financial resources that I managed well, plus a good bit of luck, led me to becoming the owner of a quarter-acre suburban property with a 1,050-square-foot, mid-50s frame house. The plan from the start was to do a permaculture makeover with the goal to reduce my eco-footprint and to produce a useful amount of my own needs like food, energy, water, and income from the site. Twenty-four years later, I can say that plan has worked out well. I can give credit to my very enjoyable lifestyle, to my choices to reduce my eco-footprint.
I am so grateful to have learned and put into effect the ideal of how to prioritize my own time and money. Very good. Let's return to a look at the primer for Paradigm Shift. And please be aware, you can find more detail on a primer for Paradigm Shift on YouTube. Search Jan Spencer Primer and also Post Carbon Institute's Resilience Magazine online has more content on the primer. Writing is a great way to crystallize and clarify one's thoughts, so I'd like to share some of these short thoughts relating to the primer, relating to paradigm shift. A significant amount of paradigm shift can manifest in our own lives and homes with families, friends, and neighbors as soon as we choose to prioritize our own time and money and take action. Paradigm shift is not only an issue of ecological sustainability, but also an issue of social sustainability. The greatest breakthrough needed for paradigm shift in moving towards a sustainable society and economy is not technology, rather it's our own consciousness. Many of today's most challenging and expensive social and ecological problems are totally avoidable, but they are very profitable. That's why we have them. Positive human potential is our greatest renewable resource. Every neighborhood and community has surprising allies and assets to work with for creating a preferred future. Another part of the primer I refer to as aspects of paradigm shift. By aspects, I mean how do we engage paradigm shift in our own lives to actually make it real, to make it an action, to move forward. One set of ideals I refer to as the wisdom of the world's great spiritual traditions. Not to be confused with the religion, but the traditions, the ideals, the recommended suggested social behavior. Almost all the world's great spiritual traditions share this wisdom. This wisdom is perfect for paradigm shift. Those ideals are care for the natural world, modesty of lifestyle, service to the community, uplift of the spirit, and being accountable for our own actions. A person's own individual lifestyle a nation's economic system, a civilization could well be based on these ideals. Permaculture is another aspect of paradigm shift, a wonderful, powerful system of design for taking care of human needs in ways that are friendly to people and planet. The primer goes into more detail. Another aspect that I've mentioned earlier is how do we manage our own time and money. My own property is a good example of that idea. How do we manage our own time and money? 
As I described, my place is mid-50s vintage. The house has never been remodeled. All the original floors and fixtures are pretty much like they were 50 years ago, and I'm totally good with that. I maybe could have spent $35,000, $45,000 on a kitchen remodel, but of course, that's not what I chose to do. For one, I don't have the money to remodel like that, and two, I wouldn't spend money on a kitchen remodel even if I had it. So instead of a kitchen remodel, my garage has been remodeled into a bedroom. I bought water storage tanks. I installed my own edible landscape. I had a solar hot water heater installed. I put a galvalume metal roof on my house instead of asphalt shingles. I rented a cement saw to cut up my driveway. Now that space where I used to have a driveway is into food production. So instead of a kitchen remodel, I've been investing in paradigm shift. Closely related to the idea of prioritizing time and money is what I call the double benefit. Recall the comment, the consumer culture, in fact, does produce many types of products and services that can be helpful on behalf of paradigm shift, like heat pumps, wheelbarrows, tools of various kinds. I would even include glasses for people who don't see well. Count me in for glasses. We certainly need progressive financial institutions as well. My friend Ole in Portland had a loan to buy that run-down apartment complex that he turned into an eco-village. He didn't have the money to buy that. He had to borrow money. Much of paradigm shift is going to cost money. So when we buy healthy products, we avoid the external costs. For example, healthy food most of the time leads to healthier people, and that means fewer trips to the doctor. So instead of paying money to repair the damage caused by unhealthy products, we invest that money instead in healthy ways and paradigm shift. That saved money might go to your own home. It might go to some civic organization doing good work in the community. That's the double benefit. Not only do we save money by not buying unhealthy products in the first place, we avoid having to pay for the damage those products cause, either to our own well-being or public health in general. And, of course, another critical element of aspects is reducing our ecological footprints. The primer features a very thought-provoking graphic that I created. It's a comparison between the consumer culture and paradigm shift. What would different aspects of life as we know it in the consumer culture, what might those aspects look like in paradigm shift? And, of course, many aspects of what we're used to every day in the consumer culture don't make the cut 
to the preferred future to paradigm shift. The primer goes into more detail. Much of the primer is devoted to describing real-life examples of paradigm shift already in action. We don't have to wait for permission. We can enjoy many of the benefits of paradigm shift as soon as we take action and we prioritize our own time and money. Moving along, here's a short story of paradigm shift in action. It's not dramatic, but it is important. Recall, I've used the term allies and assets and the ideal of making good use of existing opportunities for advancing the cause of paradigm shift and sustainability. Last week was our monthly neighborhood association meeting and program. We take turns organizing the program and last week I did the organizing for the program. The name of the presentation was Gardens Deliver More Than Fruit and Veggies. There are many gardens, lots of fruit trees in my neighborhood as part of our history, but I wanted to talk more about the social and economic aspect of having a garden. Gardens can catalyze all kinds of benefits to the neighborhood, to public health, to our own lives, beyond just fruit and vegetables. That's what the presentation was about. Gardens create friendships and possibilities, and within our discussions about gardens, we can share ideas about more ambitious outcomes like transforming our neighborhood, transforming suburbia, building civic culture, and, of course, reducing ecological footprints. Several other speakers were invited to be part of the presentation. There was the School Garden Project, MIMS Garden, and Oregon State University Master Gardeners. All these entities are assets, allies, in helping to increase food production in our neighborhood, but also increase social collaborations in our neighborhood as well. Gardens can boost resilience, preparedness, and the local economy. I showed an image of how a neighborhood could look if people took down fences and purposefully engaged with each other to make better use of both the physical landscape but also the social landscape of suburbia. It's a beautiful picture. Looking down using a Google Maps image to show what this part of the neighborhood could look like. Here's a brief description of the image and you can actually see the image on YouTube. It's part six of the primer for paradigm shift towards the end of that presentation. You can see this image. Imagine about 15 suburban houses. The fences are all down. There's edible landscaping and gardens everywhere. There could be some water features, some accessory dwelling units, playground, food forests, a nice gazebo. I indicated where one neighbor in the upper left-hand corner of the image goes to visit a neighbor friend in the lower right hand. It's a beautiful three or four minute meandering stroll. So I shared and explained this image at our neighborhood meeting. 
very much providing an idea of what paradigm shift could look like. The presentation was a good example of using something available, something that's already there, and using that asset for a more ambitious set of ideals. Many cities have neighborhood programs and neighborhood associations. They could all be advocating paradigm shift in one way or another. When you participate, you help set the agenda for the neighborhood association. Our neighborhood association has been a big part of advocating progressive ideas and ideals in our neighborhood for years. We had a follow-up work party at the school garden project at our neighborhood elementary school and also a site tour where those who participated made still more connections with each other, made new friends. Take a few moments and consider where you might be able to share ideas and ideals and vision for paradigm shift. One could describe a paradigm shift vision in a class, at a community group meeting, at a church social concerns meeting, in a sermon, with their friends at lunch break. Paradigm shift ideals and visions are good to share, and then we need to make them happen in real life. I've been reading a book about humans arriving to North America when there was a land bridge between northeast Siberia and Alaska 12 to 14,000 years ago. This was the era of the megafauna, mastodons, mammoths, saber-toothed cats, armadillos the size of small cars, and the immense short-faced bear six feet tall at the shoulder. Did the early humans come down the coast using boats? Did they make use of the ice-free corridor between the two massive continental ice sheets? Did they possibly arrive in some other way? There is no conclusive evidence to this fascinating mystery. The author describes more or less modern humans leaving Africa more or less 100,000 years ago. Some researchers suggesting it was a changing climate pushed humans out across the Red Sea towards what is now Saudi Arabia. The writer made reference to a term used by anthropologist, cognitive modernity. The term refers to how early humans made problem-solving leaps in culture and technology, often for the purpose of survival given new and challenging environmental conditions. We might say cognitive modernity has delivered to us language, art, the Clovis-era spear points, shoes, boats, and clothing, to name just a few. This capacity to adapt allowed humans to spread from the cradle of Africa into Europe, the Middle East, Asia, Australia, and, of course, eventually North and South America. I reflected on this idea of cognitive modernity and our own period of history.
a thought about climate change, extreme social and economic disequity, the accelerated rate of species extinction and damage to the natural world. I thought about the consumer culture and the celebration of excess and vanity and how, in my opinion, the consumer culture disempowers positive human potential. And, of course, as mentioned, I consider capitalism as we know it to be the common denominator of virtually all these problems. Remarkably, capitalism and the consumer culture offer us an enormous opportunity for the evolution and progress of the human species. And, of course, that opportunity is for humans to uplift their spirits engage in paradigm shift, and move past capitalism. We already have a very good idea of how to make those changes. The Primer is here to help, and so are books and articles and real-life examples from thousands of people all over the world. Echo Perquet, this is why I've put so much time and effort into a primer for paradigm shift, the idea to encourage making smart use of this opportunity in history. Reducing eco-footprints, the wisdom of the world's great spiritual traditions, making common cause with allies and assets, permaculture, encouraging the goodness in others, helping to bring about a society that exists within the boundaries of the natural world. These are all part of a sensible and timely cognitive modernity for this point in history. The more people making use of this opportunity, the sooner the better. No permission needed. This is not a time to be shy. Mark. I return the microphone to you. Thanks so much, Jan, especially for freeing me up a bit to haul maple sap and cook maple syrup here in Wisconsin, something I guess you're not doing on your quarter acre in Eugene, Oregon. We'll have more from Jan Spencer and his Primer for Paradigm Shift in a few months, but next week will be Peterson Toscano and the other folks for Climate Changed. See you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. And our lives will feel the echo of our healing.